Uh, friends, it is good to be back. So you likely know Jennifer and I welcomed our son into the world some weeks ago, and I am just so thankful for everything this church to give me so much time to spend with him and Jennifer as we adjusted to a new stage in life. There are so many volunteers and folks that stepped up to fill all of the things in those weeks, and I want to give a special call out to Deacon Tina for filling the pulpit in all of those weeks and for leaving me a great story. She's been carrying me through the way of David. And we are in just a crucial moment in his story. Now, I should tell you that now that I'm back, I am feeling refreshed and renewed and ready for worship and ministry with all of you. I am also more tired than I have ever been in my entire life, including all those days in college when I was pulling all-nighters more than anyone should. So please forgive me if at some point I zone out or I become incoherent in the middle of saying something. I can only assume that... Part of parenthood is eventually adapting to constant sleep deprivation, even if I haven't gotten there just yet. It is what it is. So over these last few weeks, you've been uh, looking through the story of David, the shepherd boy who defeated Goliath, who was chosen to succeed Saul as the king of Israel, and we're returning to this story at a key moment in the book of 2 Samuel. A story that may be familiar to some, but told with such incredible nuance and refinement there's likely to be something new for all of us and a powerful message that will ring true today. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, it took me a very long time to learn how to not hate board games. Are there any board game fans in the congregation with us today? Anybody who enjoys pulling up board games with family and friends come to visit? Oh, a few. Okay, well, let me, let me ask an, an easier question then, because I'm jealous of a few of you raise your hand, but I bet you, you all have a favorite game to pull out when company is over, and you think that would be a fun thing to do. What are some of your favorite games that you like to pull out in those moments, friends? I'm going to invite you to call them out. If you're watching online, put them in the chat. What are the games that this group of folks enjoys? Scrabble. Ah, yes, for those who think, I don't need a dictionary, I've got it all upstairs. Yes, Scrabble. Okay, what else do we got? I'm not going to make fun of all of your games, but maybe some of them, because I'm not good at any of them. What else do we have? Backgammon. Backgammon. I have never understood the rules to that one, so good for you. Uh, what others are there? Clue. Yes, the most violent board game for kids there has ever been. Um, wonderful game, Clue. What else is there? Monopoly. Ah, yes, we're going to get to that one in just a minute. This sermon today is kind of about Monopoly. For any Monopoly fans with us this morning, know that this is a good place for your sins to be forgiven. Uh, any others? Okay, let me jump right onto Monopoly then. Oh, see, friends, I took a long time to figure out how to not hate board games. And it's by no fault of the games itself, except maybe Monopoly. It's just that I am a sore loser who likes to win all the time. Which is an incredible challenge, considering that I'm not very good at board games. I've come to accept this very slowly. And I, as I tell folks who invite me over to play a game or, you know, pull out the board games when I'm already there, just spring on me, I say, you should know I'm not very good at games that involve luck, strategy, 
or scale? And they said, doesn't that involve every game? And I said, yes, it absolutely does. It encompasses every game that has ever existed. And so to enjoy playing a game, I have to accept before we even begin that I will most likely lose. This has worked well for every game except Monopoly. Monopoly, you might know, is the game of buying and renting properties played on a square board that's traveled in continuous loop by players seeking to amass wealth until they have won by becoming the richest player on the board, which always seems to involve the slow and painful dismantling of every other participant, such as yours truly. As it turns out, this might be, in fact, the entire point of the game. So the first iteration of Monopoly was developed in 1903 by a woman whose name was Elizabeth Maggi. Uh, and it was directly intended to show the evils of accruing vast sums of wealth at the expense of others. As she was quoted in an article, she said, It is a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. The game grew in popularity since 1903. It was even used in some university classrooms to explore this social critique of monopolies. And while it had been, has been adapted in some significant ways since that first moment, its principal demonstration, I think, has remained the same in that some player will manage to develop a minor lead at the beginning of the game, and then they will leverage that quickly to control nearly all of the game's resources and finances and all of the properties becoming so incomparably powerful that they will wreak destruction on their opponents, driving them to bankruptcy and defeat. I suppose it's a fun game if you can win it. And now, while the economic application can no doubt be debated, I do think that Elizabeth Maggi's being cleverly illustrates an inescapable truth that when we amass an empire consolidating power and resources in our control, we leave a wake of destruction that is just as likely to encompass ourselves as any of our perceived enemies. If my experience is any measure, nobody ends up happy at the end of a game of Monopoly. And this, too, is what, this, what David's own story demonstrates. So our scripture reading today begins in the middle of this story. What David had done, the author writes, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what exactly had David done? To find out, we have to step at least a chapter earlier. At the start of chapter 11, the narrator tells us that it's spring. And spring is the time when kings go off to fight wars, except for King David, who stays put in his palace in Jerusalem and sends his armies and his commanders off to fight in his stead. One evening, David roused himself from bed, apparently for the first time that day, and is pacing back and forth on the roof of his palace when he notices a beautiful woman bathing. He sends a message to find out who she is and learns that her name is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers. David, who is himself married several times over at this point, decides not to let either of their marriages stand in his way of getting what he wants, and so he sends more messengers to go and bring Bathsheba to the palace so he can have his way with her. Bathsheba returns home and then, a short time later, sends a two-word message to the king. Pregnant. And so it all begins. But before we continue on to see where it's all going, we should pause to truly understand this starting point. As is so often the case in crimes against women, there are frequent attempts to indict Bathsheba in David's sin. But this contradicts 
There is nothing indecent about Bathsheba's bathing, which was the culture and the practice of the time, nor is her beauty somehow a mitigating factor in David's immorality. The narration of the story makes it clear that David is the actor in every instance of their interaction. He sees her, he seeks her out, he has her brought to the palace, and he sends her home. Bathsheba is at the will of the most powerful ruler in the land. Now, I'm working on speaking as delicately as I can about all of this, but let the listener understand this was coerced and not consensual. And this is a troubling development in the story of David, who we truly want to be a moral and just king over Israel. Following his story so far, he's had some exceptional moments, notably that defeat over Goliath. But they do seem a long time ago now, and we are left with a king whose character is troublingly ambiguous. Was this a single, though horrendous, mistake or something more? As the story continues, King David summons Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from battle. And if we are still hoping that David is a man of God, despite having done this terrible thing, we might expect David to confess to Uriah, to admit the error of his ways, and seek reconciliation. This is not what happens. Instead, the cover-up begins, and David tries to hide the yet-unborn child's paternity. After a few cursory questions about the battle, David sends Uriah home from the palace to wash his feet, wink, wink, and with every implication you might imagine. Even sends a gift after Uriah to set the mood, but Uriah never gets home. Instead, Uriah sleeps just outside the palace gates in solidarity with the other soldiers and the Ark of the Covenant who are all sleeping in tents on the battlefield. David's servants tell him what happened without even needing to be asked. And so David tries again the next day. He invites Uriah over, and this time he plies him with drinks until he can send him home completely inebriated. But still, Uriah refuses and sleeps outside the palace gates. It's unclear at this point whether Uriah knows what's going on, whether he's simply being an honorable soldier, or is unwilling to be a pawn in David's machinations. It certainly wouldn't have been hard to find out what David was doing, considering the number of messengers that have been involved, that have gone between David and Bathsheba, and considering that the palace servants knew well enough what David was trying to do that they could tell him that his plan wasn't working. And whether or not we decide that Uriah knew in the end, it becomes increasingly clear here that this cover-up is more for plausible deniability than anything else. In the end, David sends Uriah back to the battlefield, carrying in his own hand a written message from the king commanding his death. The commander of David's armies, having reading, read, read David's instructions, stages Uriah's death in the midst of battle. News reaches Jerusalem, Bathsheba mourns her husband as required by convention, and then David marries her, in addition to his other wives, and likely imagines that everything is taken care of. But, the narrative tells us, what David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what exactly had David done? Coerced marital infidelity to start an attempted cover-up and a successful murder to boot. But this might not be all. These two chapters are the turning point in all of David's story. 
Because it's more than just a single terrible mistake and even more than a painful string of poor choices. What we have seen here is, in fact, the trigger that springs a trap that David has been building for himself from the beginning. Far more than an aberration from David's character, this is the culmination of David's actions, the beginning of the wake of destruction that every empire leaves behind when it inevitably begins to crumble. And so, to understand, we have to go back further than a single chapter, far back enough that we see not just what David did, but what he should have done. If you have a Bible handy, you're invited to turn out the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. I'm going to read it out for you as I pull it up in my own Bible here. Um, this is an incredibly important scripture for understanding the function of kings in the Old Testament. For while it might seem that God did not want to have the Israelite, not want the Israelites to have a king at times, we find here a clear instruction that they can have a king, and exactly what that king is supposed to look like. Again, this is Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. It says this, Once you have entered the land the Lord your God has given you, and you have taken possession of it and settled down in it, you might say, Let us appoint a king over us, as all our neighboring nations have done. You can indeed appoint over you a king that the Lord your God selects. You can appoint over you a king who is one of your fellow Israelites. You are not allowed to appoint over you a foreigner who is not one of your fellow Israelites. That granted, the king must not acquire too many horses. And he must not return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Because the Lord told you, you will never go back by that road again. The king must not take numerous wives so that his heart doesn't go astray. Nor can the king acquire too much silver and gold. Instead, when he sits on his royal throne, he must himself write a copy of this instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. That instruction must remain with him, and he must read it every day of his life so that he learns to revere the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this instruction and these regulations by doing them, by not being overbearing toward his fellow Israelites, and by not deviating even a bit from the commandments. If the king does all that, he will ensure lasting rule in Israel for himself and for his successors. So in short, the Israelites can have a king, but with three major stipulations. They can't own horses, they can't marry many or multiple wives, and they can't obtain too much silver or gold. This is important. Because ancient kings had three jobs. To wage war, which you can't do if you don't have horses, because horses are needed to pull chariots, and you can't win a war without chariots. To develop allies through treaties, but this was done by marrying those from other kingdoms, and the Israelite king can't marry many wives. And taxing people to develop a treasury, which, which can't be done if you can't have too much silver or gold. The Israelite king, as instructed by God, can do none of the usual things that a king would be expected to do. Instead, the Israelite king was to write down and then recite the law all the days of his life. This 
is a radical reliance on God and on God alone, which is a fundamental element to the Jewish and later to the Christian faith. God's people are never to trust in military power or wealth. God's people are never to amass an empire for themselves, but to entrust themselves fully to the kingdom of God. Then, Deuteronomy says, then the king will have a lasting rule. David does the opposite. He establishes himself as a conventional king, amassing an empire which very quickly, as is so often, if not always the case, very quickly becomes about protecting himself. This is what we see happening in his cover-up and is, in fact, what has been in place from the very beginning. In the first chapter of 2 Samuel, a messenger arrives to tell David that he has king, killed King Saul on the field of battle. The death of King Saul opens up the throne for David to ascend to the throne, as has been promised to him. But instead of meeting this news with rejoicing, David takes a different tone. How is it that you weren't afraid to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? David asks him. We can hear he refers to Saul not by name, but by position. And he goes on to kill the one who claimed to have killed King Saul, telling him that his blood was on his own head for having killed the king of Israel. David had no love for Saul. Saul tried to kill David. But David recognized the precedent and wanted to be sure that everyone knew that it was not lawful to kill a king. Wanted everyone to know exactly what happens if you kill a king because he was about to become king and didn't want to meet the same fate. And the case builds against him even further in instances all the way up until the start of chapter 11 when David does not go to war as all the other kings went. Why? Wars where kings were killed were defeated, and David would not put himself at risk like that, choosing instead to marshal his empire to protect him. Had he gone, he might never have seen Bathsheba, and the story might have gone very differently. But he had built enough power to protect himself from everything and everyone, so much so that even when his sin against God and Bathsheba and his family was well known, nobody dared reproach him. No one that is, except the prophet Nathan, but even Nathan has to hide his prophetic repute. So Nathan tells a story. This is the scripture that we heard. There's a rich man who takes the single sheep of a poor man, he tells the king, and the only person left who can dare condemn the king cries out in judgment, the one who did this is demonic. Or translated a different way, the one who did this should be killed. And all that's left for Nathan to say is, that's you. David repents immediately. We see that in the text. But repentance does not negate the damaging effect of sin. And for the rest of 2 Samuel, the reader watches as King David's family spirals apart in destruction. Tragedy involves the death of the child of David and Bathsheba first, which is a troubling development, to say the least. Of limited but important comfort is the recognition in the text that this is the impact of sin and not the work of God. In the Hebrew, it might be translated that the deed may 
David had done. The deed did evil in the eyes of God. Destruction is wrought and falls on the child in a way that doesn't make sense. But this is the work of David, and not the work of God. So while this leaves terrible questions unanswered, at least we might be clear that God does not take life on account of sin, and in fact spends the whole of the biblical text trying to do exactly the opposite. David amassed an empire, and it brought destruction on him, his family, and his people. He did not heed the instruction of Deuteronomy, which was to trust in God and not in the protection the power of the world can bring. Amassing the protection of an empire usurps God of the throne and protects even that which should be laid bare for forgiveness and reconciliation. This is a timely parable in all times, including our own. We sometimes remember that we do not have the power we think we need, whether personally or as a church. We lack the civic standing, the political persuasion, or the financial base that we wish we had, or perhaps we once did. But we have seen what this does to a king and have witnessed the same in all the years since. Henry Nowen wrote once that every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. We hardly need to name the crises of the church, particularly those that all too closely parallel the coerced infidelity of King David. But even if we were to try, the list is too long to have any hope of completing We are not to amass power, but instead we might perhaps count our more complicated blessings. There is a prayer by the Reverend William Sloan Coffin, which he titled For the Church in These Times, which reads in part, O God, be thou our sole strength in time of trouble. In the midst of anxiety, grant us the grace to count our blessings, the simple ones, health, food, sleep, one another, a spring that is bursting out all over, a nation which despite all has so much to offer so many, and grant us to count our more complicated blessings, our failures, which teach us so much more than our success, our lack of money, which points the only truly renewable resources, the resources of our spirit, our lack of health, yea, even the knowledge of death. For until we learn that life is limitation, we are surely as formless and as shallow as a stream without its banks. Send us forth into a new week with a gladsome mind, free and joyful in the spirit of Jesus Christ. The work of us all and the work of the church is never to increase our own standing, is never to amass power for our own protection, or even to amass power for reasons we think are good and worthwhile, but to welcome the more complicated blessings. Complicated blessings of the things we lack, which returns the protection of the God who leads us. Speak.
Friends, let's continue now in worship as we sing our next hymn. And I invite you to stand for it, which is Change My Heart, O God. It's in the faith we sing, number 2152. 